Hello, humans. Hello, humans. Hello, humans of Minnesota. Humans of the Twin Cities. Humans of the world, because I know that this podcast goes out across the world. Hello, this is Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, yeah, the, the heart of Minnesota and however else we want to talk about it. But here we are on Monday, uh, right before school's going to begin. Um, and well, in some parts of the country has already begun. Um, in other parts, they wait till after Labor Day. But you've got me thinking about school and our theme here is about inspiring through education or educators who inspire or supporters of education who support, who inspire. So um, uh, coming up will be a, an interview with uh, attorney Michael Cerisi, who is a well-known Minneapolis attorney. He's known across the country, but he's also the, found, the co-founder of a foundation seeking to transform Minnesota's educational landscape for children of colors other than the white color. But, um, and remember, this show is about idealism and idealists. It's about trying to change the world for the better. And so I want to start out by highlighting an idealist that many of you know about. You're not going to probably know her name, um, but at least the story will ring a bell because this idealist, um, Aaron Grunwell, Gruwell, G-R-U-W-E-L-L, um, inspired a movie, and that movie uh, was, uh, is Freedom Writers, W-R-I-T-E-R-S, uh, which starred uh, Hilary Swank. You may remember uh, that that movie. Um, it came out about 10 years ago. Erin Gruwell is now 50 years old. She just had her birthday last week um, on August 15th. She was born in California and was the product of uh, the California public school system and then the California university system. In 1994, she began student teaching at Woodrow Wilson High School in Long Beach, California. Long Beach is not a wealthy city, and at the time, in uh, Long Beach, it, uh, there was voluntary uh, integration going on in the schools. And Woodrow Wilson High School, at not too far before 1994, was known as a stellar, high-performing high school. But with integration, because the system could not operate properly to deal with integration, um, uh, the students started performing poorly because there was an influx of students who were, quote, other, unquote, and uh, who had not uh, gotten the benefit of, of quality education before they were in high school. So um, early into uh, 1990, the 1994-95 school year, Erin uh, Gruwell, she was a student teacher. Uh, so uh, early on... Um, through a variety of circumstances, she encountered a number of things. One is she, under, she came to understand that there was a heavy gang prevalence, prevalence within that school. And the gangs were broken down along color barriers. So you had, uh, you had the blacks, uh, black-colored humans. You had the Latinos. You had Asians. And then the, the white wonderland. Uh, they called them white, the wonderland um, folks, the white students. And uh, early on, if you watch the movie, and by the way, I did watch the movie Freedom Writers last night um, because I figured, look, if I'm going to talk about this woman, Erin Gruwell, I, let's at least see what the movie is about. Um, 
And if you watch it, you will see that early on she encountered the, the, the way that all the students self-segregated, the animosity between the students. Um, so she understood this. And then through happenstance, she came to realize um, that while almost everybody in the room knew about a rapper or a rap song, and almost everybody in the room had been the subject of gunfire, she learned that there was only one student out of 30 or so in her class who knew about the Holocaust. And that one student who raised his hand knowing about the Holocaust was a white-colored student. So this got Aaron Gruwell thinking. Now, um, I, you know, I'm a big supporter of our teachers, trust me, and I happen to be an educator in a, you know, an off way because I'm a trainer and speaker on human inclusivity and diversity. Um, and I support our teachers, but very often they don't use their imaginations like they could. Many times they get tired, they get fatigued. And if you've got a student body in your classroom that is um, taking away rather than giving, um, yeah, it's easy to see how you would be fatigued. But Aaron Gruwell, wet behind the ears, um, and idealistic, and you've got to watch this movie, Freedom Writers with Hilary Swank. But Aaron Gruwell thought outside the box. So um, what she did with this class of students, because she had the class from their freshman year into their sophomore year, um, and what she did was a couple of things. One is uh, she asked the students in the class to keep journals. And you see in the, in the movie, I mean, Hilary Swank, Aaron Gruel was married, Ultimately, um, her idealism is so intense, her dedication to teaching is so intense, um, her marriage falls apart. Whether that is true or not, I do not know. You know how movies can exaggerate um, or, or make some things up to just give them some sexiness. But she certainly went to the store, used her own monies, and bought um, journals um, for the students and 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 asked them to each write every day about their experience of simply being alive. And she uh, let the students know that it was, you know, that they wanted to share the journals with her. Uh, that was great if they, you know, if she, they didn't want to share them, she would just open them very quickly to see that they wrote something, but she wouldn't read what they had to say. And there's a scene in the movie, because she, she said, if you, wanna, if you wanna write in the journals, you want me to read them, put them on the shelf in a locked cabinet. I will unlock it during the class, but then I will lock it back up. There's a scene in the movie where you're wondering, would anybody ever leave their journal? And then you watch her open the cabinet. And trust me, when it opens, when she opens it, your heart will soar. So that was one thing that she did. And ultimately, all of those journals turned into a book, into a book that was published um, titled The Freedom Writers, uh, The Freedom Writers Journals. But another thing that Erin Gruwell did is that she had the students read the diary of Anne Frank. And, um, and then she had the students talk about their experiences of living life. And ultimately, that talking, the combination of that and reading about Anne Frank caused students to start sharing about what it meant to be them. Um, and because vulnerability brings us together rather than pulls us apart, 
those students, divided by color and race, started blending and stopped seeing color or race. I don't like the word race. It's not the right word. Or socioeconomic class. And they just simply began to see humans. So eventually, um, they raised some money to bring in a speaker. Um, Hermine Meep Gies, uh, M-I-E-P, and the second is G-I-E-S, it's Dutch, um, who was the woman whose family helped um, protect Anne Frank's family and others, and who eventually was threatened with murder by the Gestapo for having harbored the Franks. So, so in the movie, they raised, the students, they raised money to bring this woman, this hero. Um, and, and they brought, and in the movie, they have other Holocaust, uh, Holocaust survivors. And these are real people. I mean, they, <laughs> and the movie has the real humans um, in it. And I've got to tell you, it is uh, quite moving. And then, of course, in the movie, we see that the white administration and other teachers had written off uh, these students. Um, and we watch how Erin Gruwell tries to work the system. And ultimately, she befriends the superintendent, or let's say the superintendent of Long Beach School System, which had 100, almost 100,000 students, befriends Erin Gruwell. And uh, that man, a man by the name of Dr. Carl Cohen, becomes a huge supporter of her. Now, ultimately, 100% of this 150 students that stayed with Erin Gruwell, and ultimately she was with them from freshman year through high school, 100% of those students graduated from high school. I mean, that was, that bucked all the trends. And ultimately, many of them went on to college. And later, Erin Gruwell left a teaching and she founded the Freedom Writers Foundation. On that, if you go to the Freedom Writers Foundation, you'll see that there's a Freedom Writers podcast, um, and there's a documentary coming out on PBS about the Freedom Writers. I listened to the podcast this morning. You just have to do it, please. And I'm running out of time. That's my story of my life. But Aaron Gruwell, the Freedom Writers, well worth your time. I hope you think this is well worth your time, too. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ellie Krug, please. I'll be back with interview of Michael Cerisi. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Better Futures Minnesota impacts the community by addressing root causes of poverty, homelessness, dependency on public assistance, and high rates of untreated trauma that often lead to incarceration. 
The lives of men served have been marked by chaos, violence, and loss, which contribute to feelings of devaluation, rage, and lost human potential. Healings from this trauma is essential before participants can succeed as workers, fathers, and responsible community members. Learn how you can support our efforts at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com. We're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Ellie Krug here with you. Um, Aaron Gruwell, please go check out the website, uh, Freedom Writers Foundation. Um, listen to that uh, podcast that I told you about because um, it, is, it is a phenomenal project and it needs your support. So now uh, we're turning from one idealist to another. Um, On the line with me is attorney uh, Michael Cerisi, who really uh, has name recognition uh, very highly here in the Twin Cities um, and in the nation. Um, Michael Cerisi, Mike, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? I'm great, Ellie. Thank you for having me. You know, Mike, just to give uh, the audience a little bit of an introduction, you've been practicing law for more than 40 years. Is that right? That is, that is right. And you were uh, formerly a principal in the Robbins Kaplan firm, and, but in 2015 you went out and you founded another law firm. Um, if I have that right, because you wanted to get back into doing regular lawyer work and, um, and being on the front lines. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's partially right. Uh, we wa- I wanted to get into a, a smaller platform, really, Ellie, to uh, to do the things that I did earlier in my career without all the uh, the responsibilities and obligations of being in a larger law firm. And and uh, the name of your current law firm is what, Mike? It's Cerisi Conlon. Uh, we formed it with uh, I formed it with two other uh, individuals, uh, Jan Conlon and Katie Crosby Lehman. Uh, we started with six lawyers. We're now at fifteen. Okay. Well, congratulations, and uh, um, and I'm thrilled that you're back, uh, uh, being able to be nimble and uh, do what you formerly did when you were earlier as a lawyer. The reason I'm talking to you is because uh, I mean you have this very distinguished legal career. I mean you were at the forefront. You helped bring about uh, the great tobacco. Uh, litigation settlement that has benefited uh, Minnesota in a number of different ways. Uh, you, uh, you, you have done great as a lawyer. I mean, that's, not, that's just an understatement. But the reason I wanted you on this show is because of the foundation that you are part of, the Cerisi Walburn Foundation. Uh, and I wanted to have an opportunity to talk with you about that. But in particular, I wanted to talk with you about uh, what you're doing with billboards um, across, uh, is it the state or is it at least in the metro? Um, it's in the metro area right now, yes. Okay. And uh, and your billboards are, um, I just passed one on the way into the office today, and your billboards are pretty right to the point. Um, I'm looking at one of them right now, and it says, quote, Minnesota schools are worst in the nation for our children of color, unquote. Mike? Talk to me about this. How did, how did these billboards come about? And please share with us the mission of the Cerisi Walburn Foundation. Well, the, the foundation was formed uh, over 20 years ago upon completion of the tobacco litigation. It was originally known as the Robbins Kaplan Miller and Cerisi Foundation. 
uh, we changed the name on our 20th anniversary uh, mainly to give uh, recognition and credit to Roberta Walburn, who, uh, with me, was responsible for uh, conceiving of and bringing the lawsuit against the tobacco industry. Uh, and over the 20-some years, 21 years now of the Foundation's history, we've given grants of approximately $23 million uh, to various educational uh, institutions and systems, including the Minneapolis and St. Paul school districts, a number of charter schools, private schools, uh, early learning uh, throughout the state of Minnesota. Uh, we've uh, also given grants to for health care uh, and for other social issues throughout the state. Uh, what we learned over that time, Ellie, is that you know we have this tremendous disparity between our children of color and uh, white kids, and most people are not aware of it. Uh, we all think, you know, that it's Minnesota. Everybody's better than average, and we got great schools here in Minnesota. Uh, and we do have good schools, and, and we're doing a good job, but we're not doing a good job for all of our children. And the essential thing is to remember that all children are our children. Hmm. Uh, and that's sort of the motto that we live by, and we have a responsibility as a society to make sure that all of our children have the opportunity to have a great education. Not all will take advantage of it. Uh, that's just the nature of uh, human beings. But the overwhelming majority of children want to learn, uh, and they deserve the right to learn uh, at a good school. So why? Uh, so as we look, yep. go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, as we looked at this, and, and we saw in, in Minnesota, we have the worst uh, high school graduation rate in the nation for children of color. It's fiftieth uh, uh, for uh, African Americans. It's fiftieth for Hispanic. It's forty ninth for Native Americans. And no other state is that bad. I mean, we're worse than California, New York, Alabama, Mississippi, etc. Uh, and we also have a great disparity in achievement. Uh, so we have achievement gaps that are that are very, very large. And nobody really recognizes it. Uh, you know, you talk to people out in the street and they say, well, we have great schools. So we said, let's, let's forge and force a discussion on this issue to get to the opinion leaders, key opinion leaders, so that we can bring pressure on them to change this. Uh, so that's what we're trying to do. And we're not just raising the issue. We come up with what we think are solutions, things that we've learned over the 21 years of making the grants of over $23 million. So a, so a couple of things. One is, um, I mean, why why do you believe that we have such a disparity? I mean, is it is it, you know, embedded in... You know, the way that white color people live in Minnesota, and I, you know, I, I, I'm a unifier, not a divider, so I'm not here to drive a wedge. But do you think that it's embedded in the culture here that um, we're, we, we just have this blind spot as it relates to understanding the condition of people who are not like us in terms of white colored people? Well, I, I think it's part that uh, that's what, what I would call and what we've called the cultural intelligence aspect of it. We have, uh, Ellie, about 33% of our students in Minnesota are, are children of color, and about 5% are teachers of color. Uh, statistics show and studies show that uh, from the standpoint of being exposed to people like you, that uh, children of color who have one or two teachers of color during their uh, educational experience have exponentially more success than those that do not. Uh, we know that early learning is a key, key point. Uh, we know that accountability and responsibility at the school level, 
autonomy at the school level is a key, key point. Uh, we know that school report cards is a key point so that we know how the schools are doing. So a lot of, uh, I think, the, the cause of this is multifactored. It's not just poverty. Uh, you know, here in America, we've had succeeding generations of uh, immigrants. Uh, many started in poverty. They were educated. Uh, but they came from a white culture. Uh, so th there is a cultural issue uh, that needs to be addressed in the schools. The teachers are doing, uh, you know, overall are doing uh, as good a job as they can, and some are doing a great job. Uh, but we need to get uh, the, the right type of training for teachers, give them the help they need. We, we call on them to do a lot of things in school that we didn't call on them to do in, in past years uh, as a result of poverty uh, and other situations that kids come out of. So, you know, I use my own life as an experience in this. I, my dad had a seventh grade education. He was born here in America. They went back to Italy, actually Sicily, to bring back his grandfather. First World War broke out. Uh, he ended up uh, staying there. He came back. They put him in the school. He was an older kid. And, you know, he, he finally quit because he was so much older than the other kids in his class. And he, and he uh, was a self-made individual. Uh, my mother died when I was in seventh grade. She had been sick for a number of years with breast cancer. And when that happened, I was surrounded by folks. Uh, it was my dad's sisters. It was the nuns at Old St. Andrew's Grade School in Como Park. Uh, it was neighborhood uh, people who, you know, surrounded our family and helped us. And all children need that. And today we're seeing that a lot of them are not getting that. So we need to understand that the reason for this disparity is multifactored, and we need to start addressing those issues. Early learning is a big, big issue. It is, uh, in and, Minnesota. and Mike, uh, I'm going to interrupt you because we need to take a break, but we'll come back, okay? Great. Um, listeners, we've been talking to attorney Michael Cerisi, who is also one of the founders and principals with the Cerisi Walburn Foundation, and um, talking about disparities in education in Minnesota. It's a really great conversation that we need to have. When we come back from our break, we'll talk more about Mike. If you like what you hear, visit my website at lakrug.com. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. At Better Futures Minnesota, our purpose is to fuel and guide our men's desire to turn their lives around and walk a new path toward better health and success. We are intent on changing the costly systems and practices that produce poor results and perpetuate the chaos and cycles of dependency experienced by men who have faced incarceration. We are building a movement that supports personal transformation and a healthy, vibrant community of men. Visit us at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn how you can support our movement. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com 
Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. And we're back on AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio. Ellie Krug here. Um, we've been speaking with attorney Michael Cerisi, uh, who is a principal founder. I'm probably not saying that right, Mike, with the Cerisi Walburn Foundation for Children, um, an organization that has been plastering a part of the metro, um, and that's a strong word, but putting up in the metro billboards, uh, calling out the disparities between uh, uh, white-colored uh, children and uh, and children of other colors as it relates to educational attainment. Mike, one of the statistics that I read in the uh, um, article that came out in the Star Tribune on August 3rd about your billboards was that there is a 35% uh, percentage gap between uh, whites and black uh, children, white colored children and black colored children in statewide reading scores, and that the math right. gap is even wider than that. This is, in my book, this is an emergency. I mean, it's not like just, you know, a problem. It's an emergency. And so uh, tell me, what did you do before you got the billboards up? Because I would assume that the billboards were, while it's very imaginative, it was option you know, H after you've exhausted A, B, C, and D. Right. Uh, let me uh, use one example, one of the factors I think that is leading to these disparities, and that's early learning, uh, which all of these studies that have been done, and these are statistically significant studies. Uh, a lot of the great work in this regard was done by Art Rolnick uh, at the Federal Reserve here in Minneapolis, and Art has spoken about this throughout the country. Uh, in Minnesota, we, we formed an organization called the Minnesota Early Learning Foundation. It was formed by a, a number of uh, foundations, uh, corporations, uh, you know, here in, in Minnesota. And it became the really the signature program in the country. And, and what we did is we went to early learning scholarships and a parent-aware rating system for early learning uh, providers. And there's a four-star rating system. Mike, can I ask, what, what, what year was this that you did this? Uh, this was uh, back in uh, 2002 or three. Okay. Roughly. All right, go on. Uh, okay, so thank it, you. It's, and it's, there's been a, success, a succession of name changes to the Minnesota Early Learning Foundation. But what happened was we raised about $28 million from corporations. I mean, all the major corporations in the Twin Cities. I'm not going to name one for fear of forgetting the others. But Cargill, I will name one. The Cargill uh, and folks at Cargill were leading um, originators of, of this program. And what we did is we developed this parent-aware rating system that has become uh, renowned throughout the country, and it's, it's called the Minnesota model. We know today, now here's a policy issue that is out there, and there's, you know, we can argue which is uh, more effective or less effective, but there's no question that Early learning is a key. 
we know that yep. kids who have early learning uh, and good at early learning are going to be they have a much greater chance of success yep. as they get into school K through 12. Because it's also about getting you ready to read. And exactly. Yep. That's, and, and the math issues that you, that you talk about. So, you know, during Governor Dayton's administration, he wanted universal pre-K for four-year-olds. Yep. Nobody can argue that that's not a good idea because it is a good idea. But the question becomes, we don't have enough resources to do that throughout the state. Everybody knows that. But we do know this, that we have an estimated 35,000 children, low income, that need early learning. And we can and we do have the resources to address those issues. So we've started down that road, but we haven't put in the type of money that we can. If we just did that and addressed those 35,000 children, we'd start eliminating or reducing these gaps that we see. Right. So there's a policy issue that... You know, we, we argue about uh, which way should it be, universal pre-K or should it be uh, money targeted to those who need it most? If we, in our family, uh, we would look at, in, in any of our families, we'd say, all right, which child needs the most help? That's where, we, that's where we put our resources. Right. And that's what we think we should do from a policy standpoint on early learning. It's not to say that universal pre-K is bad because it's not. It's good. But we don't have all the resources, and while we have limited resources, we ought to put it to where it's going to do the most good. So that's one example. Uh, you know, uh, teacher training is just a, another example, the cultural intelligence that we talked about that's needed uh, so that the teachers are prepared to deal with the children who are coming in to their schools. That's, an, that's right. another big Without issue. sending them to the principal's office all the, every time because they, you know, quote-unquote talk back or... Um, I mean, because you know, of course, the disparities about discipline are so much higher for children of color other than the white color. So That's, ex that's a very good point, and that's exactly on point, uh, Ellie, because the, the, and the cultural intelligence helps the teachers be prepared to deal with these issues that they're facing in the classrooms today, and we need to, to give them that type of help. So that's another one. Uh, autonomy. I mean, school-based uh, autonomy, site-based leadership that enables the teachers and the principals in the schools to make the decisions that will most effectively uh, enable them to teach the kids under their care and supervision. Uh, and teachers want this. Uh, the fact is th th they welcome this. They just want a voice in it, and that's, that, that's the way it should be. The teachers and the principals should have that type of, of voice in what type of uh, responsibility they're going to have in the schools because they're going to be held accountable, and they should be held accountable. Uh, the thing that I mentioned earlier is you know, school report cards. I mean, all parents want to send their kids to good schools, but they don't, a lot of parents don't know how good the schools are. And the Department of Education in Minnesota has a lot of this information, but trying to get it out of there is like pulling teeth. Uh, you, you can't get the information out of the Department of Education. So we have uh, other organizations, uh, you know, that, that are addressing these types of issues, philanthropic organizations such as uh, you know, at allies, uh, all of these issues need to be addressed. And what we found, Ellie, is that there really is, as I said earlier in the program, a lack of awareness on behalf of most Minnesotans about this disparity. Because most people think we, we have right. good schools. Okay. Even people who send their kids to, to schools that aren't doing very well, they think their schools are good. Because they talk to their teachers of, of, of their children, and, you know, they like their teachers. They think they're doing a good job. And some of them aren't. 
uh, and they're unaware of, of what the, their schools are. I, there was an interesting um, event that took place when, when the, and I'm forgetting his name right now, he's the Department of Education under President Obama. Is the uh, uh, yeah I know I I you know not, what I mean yep. he came he came out of Chicago Arnie Arnie uh, Arnie um, never mind That's the but, name yep yeah go, go on though in any event he was superintendent in Chicago and he started addressing some of the disparities he went to a school and he was going to close some of the schools and uh, he was talking to the parents in in a uh, uh, this was in his book and he's, he's talking to the parents and he said look I'm closing the school because it's not doing a good job. And he looked out the parents, he says, how many of you here have children in, he picked a grade, I don't know what it was, third grade. And about seven or eight raised their hand. He said, all right, what if, what if I told you, uh, let me ask you first, how many of you think that your, your school is doing a good job? They all raised their hand. He said, what if I told you that only one of your children in that third grade is reading at grade level? They were shocked by it. Because they didn't have the information, right. so they can't bring the political pressure to bear on the schools and on the institutions uh, that are needed to, 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 to foster changes that will enable these schools to educate the way we've educated in the past. So, the so bill- I think that okay. uh, it, it's, it's vitally important that we as citizens understand this issue. I think it's the moral issue of the day. How, how can Minnesota... Uh, I mean, when you think about uh, it's, it's appalling. It, the worst in the nation. It's appalling. The, the, yeah, the only it, that's it the only word for it. It's appalling, and so the billboards are a way to get the public to understand how bad this problem is. Yes, and and they are doing the. They're doing, I mean, we're getting a lot of feedback. We're getting a lot of positive feedback. We're getting a lot of. How can you possibly say such a thing? And, and you know, right. And so, well, right. here's the statistic. Here's the statistic, uh, and it's accurate. It comes from the National Center for Educational Statistics. It's the 2016-2017 school year. That's the yep. last one available. We are the worst in the nation. All right? So that's a fact. Now, we can either deny it or we can accept it and change it. Uh, and that's what the, what we want to do is sort of foster that um, that purpose. Well, uh, to, it, to, to, go ahead. To get people yeah. to uh, address it to serve the common good. And, you know... Ellie, at the end of the day, we're all here a very short time, and uh, you know we, we sort of believe that you ought to live a life of purpose <laughs> in communion with others to serve the common good. And we can't educate our children all alone. We have to join with our fellow citizens to educate our children, and we have to educate all of our children and not just some of them. So, Mike, that is an excellent segue into the last two minutes that we have of the interview, and that is about you, the idealist. How did you get, I mean, how did you get to be such an idealist? Well, I, you know, I, I don't know if I, you know, I... You are, trust that's me. Sort of, that's, that's, sort of a loft, that's sort of a loftly description to me. I, uh, I learned, Elliot, at, at a young age uh, that everybody has hardships in, in their life. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to have a, a father who uh, was the smartest person I knew, even though he only had a seventh grade education. He had a, a, a native and natural intelligence, and he he just sort of instilled in us a um, the, the fact that we get, we're in this together, and we've got to join with others to serve the common good. And I was lucky to go to schools, St. Thomas Academy and, and the University of St. Thomas at that time, where this was cultivated in me. 
and then went on to the University of Minnesota Law School, where the same type of principles were taught. And I think that if we, uh, as adults, uh, instill those principles in our young people, and sometimes it's hard, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because we all falter along the way, and all of us have. None of us are perfect. Uh, but if we do that and we stick with that mission, uh, we're going to do a great job. Uh, people in Minnesota want to do the right thing. Uh, do. Yeah. They don't want to be known as the worst. They'd like to be known as the best. And I think that this is a phenomenal place to raise children uh, and to, to uh, you know, grow a family. And we have to get our schools to where they are uh, open and available to, to all of our children when they make the effort and when their families support them. And that's another critical point. Families have to support or somebody has to support the kids yep. uh, if they don't have family or if they have a broken family. Uh, to do their best and to serve the common good. Well, I've been a mentor to a, a, a biracial girl for the last seven years, and I absolutely understand about the support. Mike, one of the things when I talk about um, and do my work, I have this thing I call the four commonalities, that all humans have four core things in common, regardless of where your station in life is, your skin color. And that first core thing that I talk about, the first thing in common is that everyone wants a child to succeed. No one does not want a child to succeed. And I think that your billboards are just a wonderful example of the fact that what you say is that we are all in this together. And one of the, you know, we are so divided as a country along so many different ways. But one of the things I think that we can all agree on is that everyone wants a kid to succeed. So, go ahead. And you know, Ellie, you look at it and think of Minnesota as we go forward here in the 21st century. We need an educated workforce. And children of color are a vital vital part of that workforce and if we're going to the way I look at it I tell people if, if you don't believe in this just think of who's going to pay your social security who's going to pay your medicare oh worse than that who's going to be your home health care aid and who's going to be your home health care that's exactly right you know this is yep. such a uh, it is at the very base of what we do as a society is educating our children always has been always yep. should be well Michael Cerisi I could talk with you for two hours or more on the air, and maybe someday you'll let me have an opportunity to talk with you again, but we're out of time. I just want to thank you so very much for what you are doing um, with the Cerisi Walburn Foundation, and I want to thank you for what you've been doing for humans your entire legal career. And so, thank you, Mike. Thanks for being well, thank on LH2.0 Radio. Thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. I really enjoyed it. You're welcome. All right. Well, listeners, we've been speaking with Attorney Michael Cerisi. Check out his uh, the foundation, the Cerisi Walburn Foundation. Just Google that. It will come up. And uh, when we come back uh, uh, on my C-Block, I'll share with you a little bit about um, some experiences I had in meeting Holocaust survivors. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. 
Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. This is Ellie Krug from Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many listeners know that I founded Human Inspiration Works, LLC, which trains on human inclusivity and on how to be welcoming, diverse humans. Today, organizations of all sizes find that they need to train team members on diversity and inclusion. I can do that. Many say that my trainings change the way they see the world. I'd love to help make your organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. I'm Dr. Thomas Adams, President and CEO of Better Futures Minnesota. We're a social enterprise dedicated to rebuilding lives through housing, workforce development, health and family engagement, and coaching supports that give men the skills and relationships they need to succeed. Better Futures Minnesota engages men who had a history of incarceration, homelessness, poverty, untreated mental and physical health challenges to help them achieve self-sufficiency and a better future for themselves and their communities. Visit us at BetterFuturesMinnesota.com to learn how you can support our enterprise. On AM 950, LE 2.0 Radio, Ellie Krug. Um, I was serious about that. I could have talked to Michael Cerisi for a couple of hours. I mean, what a hero, okay? And please check out uh, the Cerisi Walburn Foundation, please. Um, and most importantly, share about these disparities that exist in the educational system in Minnesota. We, we, we should be ashamed. It is appalling. And now for my C block, you know, I talk about my work, I talk about my experiences in life, um, and I try and bring it home, try and make it personal. And I had fully intended, because the show is about education and, and teachers who inspire, and um, I had fully intended to talk about that, um, about maybe about the process about how I learned to be a writer so that I could inspire others because I had to unlearn writing as a lawyer. However, um, Something happened. So when I watched uh, the movie, The Freedom Writers, and I saw on the movie, because remember, I told you they brought in actual Holocaust survivors. And in that movie, um, one of the survivors um, holds her, her wrist out to the students so they could see the number tattooed on her wrist by the Nazis. When I saw that, I'm like, nope, I know what I'm going to talk about in my C block. And so I've had, I've had an experience with two Holocaust survivors. Um, both of those experiences go back to Boston. You know, I went to law school in Boston, Boston College Law School, and then practiced law in downtown Boston, learned how to be a trial lawyer for five years. And, um, and I had two encounters with Holocaust survivors. Um, uh, it was 1983, 84, 85, somewhere along there. I was a young lawyer, um, still presenting as a man. Yep. Um, uh, very wet behind the ears as a, as a lawyer. And somewhere in downtown Boston, I can't tell you where, somewhere in downtown Boston, I got in an elevator. And... Um, and either who came on with me or who came on after me 
was a small, gray-haired woman. And I, I watched um, this woman reach out to press the button on the elevator. And I, I don't know why, but I did. And when she did that, her wrist was exposed. And there was the number. In big black marks. There was the number. The tattoo. The Nazism. That she had to live with for the rest of her life. I didn't say a word to this woman. I looked at her. And in that moment, I realized that in my life, I had no idea of what it looked of what it was like to survive the human condition my second experience was with my barber again remember i present was presenting as a man then uh, fighting my gender identity issues silently that i didn't share with anyone my barber's name was isaac and he and another man um, i think both jewish I think both of German um, backgrounds, um, had a barber shop in, in Newton Center. And I would, you know, go get my hair cut, although back then my hair was quite long because it was early 80s. Go check out the hairstyles on YouTube. And, um, but I'd gotten to know Isaac, you know, a heavy, heavy accent, okay? Um, but I had gotten to know him. And somehow on one day, he got to talking because I, I, I must have asked him, you know, when did you come to the U.S.? And he shared this story of having been born in Germany and of having worked for the railroad um, in the 1930s as a young, young, must have been a very young man. And of how he hid his Jewishness. I don't know how he was able to escape the Nazi apparatus, but he did. And he worked on this railroad gang uh, throughout the war in Germany. And he told me after the war, when it was safe, these are men that he had spent all those years with. After it was safe, he told the men that he was Jewish. And I will never forget what Isaac said to me next. He said to me, the, one of those men turned to me and said, had I known that, I would have turned you in. We can't imagine here in America right now, although since 2016 we have an inkling, we have to be good to each other. We must. Okay, well, that takes care of the show. <laughs> Um, listeners, please share about this show. Um, I, I'm trying to get a million listeners on podcast. I know, Ellie Krug, very un, unrealistic. I need to do a big thanks to my producer, Brett Johnson. You are just quite wonderful, Brett. A big thanks also to our sponsors, Brending Electrolysis. Tell Bev I sent you. I just saw Bev last weekend, by the way. She does great work. And Better Futures Minnesota, our other sponsor. We are looking for sponsors. If you, run a, if you have a company and you would like to support my work, 
like to support this show, please reach out to me or reach out to the station. My email is lhakrug at gmail.com. My website is lhakrug.com. Um, if you, please follow me on Twitter because I am absolutely trying to get my Twitter followership up. And most of all, everyone, will you be good to each other? Please. We can do that. See you next week. Bye.